Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, we give away a box of books every week to one of our Patreon supporters, and we have more bonus episodes and bits and pieces. I've been reading, I was reading over Kurt Vonnegut to um, do, I made a little show. Wow, Kurt, Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut's got even earlier yeah. in this podcast. We never drink get from Drink everyone, podcast, drink yeah. fans. But there's a bit where Kurt Vonnegut says, some people start out funny and then they stop because the world is too much and mm. they can't be funny anymore. And he basically is like, people start out being funny and then they just can't. Yeah, do it as much and I think I really really do hope that stand up is something I can do my whole life but I've definitely felt recently like I've felt more serious and I've yeah. wanted to be more serious more of the time I'm exactly the same and I am conscious of uh, reminding oneself that it is important to take things in the world seriously mm. because I think the attitude of oh life's just funny it's all mental and oh let's just be silly all the time is is, is actually quite a privileged position to take oh 100 because we're not yeah being locked up on prison islands <laughs> to the Pacific north of Australia or living in poverty or you know having then, society pressing down on us you know yeah totally but then you also have that point where it's like anyone who's suffering also tries to have fun yes. and tries to have a good life yes. as well and that like you know like no matter what's going on people do also want to have fun and have joy and have a good life yes. and like no and so it's like this balance of i think it comes in line with like feeling so intensely privileged to get to do something you love for a living and have a relatively comfortable life as yes. well you know yes absolutely anyway this is Josie and robbie's book shambles <laughs> That was the pre-credit sequence, and now here we are. I guess this is a wonderful Tom Ballard. Hello, hello everyone. That is, it's an interesting that that bit of because uh, I really want to see Hannah Gadsby's show, and uh, and I kind of worry because the show that I'm doing in Edinburgh is going to be about art. So I'd already emailed her and said, "What was yours about?" Because I don't want to in any way accidentally rip that off. <laughs> and then it turns out that she's talking about these ideas of uh, you know the struggling artist and the pain of the artist as perhaps being from what you were saying. Uh, not a great way of you know as if to to make one group a special group and mm. that turns out that's the fucking theme of my book so it no, looks it's... like I'm now basically <laughs> somehow using some technique designed by the KGB to invade people's minds steal their ideas and turn them into print or low quality copies and your show is about being a depressed lesbian as well uh, well I am on the cusp <laughs> <laughs> I read this book called I Hate the Internet and there's a bit in that where he talks about how the CIA and I mean it's probably not true but he says like the CIA funded literary fiction because they saw it as a way No, there was that's an Encounter magazine which was uh, oh god I forget his name now it was um, I think the guy who wrote uh, Mr Norris Changes Trains uh, or it might have been Stephen Spender uh, Encounter magazine was financed by the CIA it's a very good magazine but it kind of Whereas now, was it the Spectator I, maybe? Oh no, the Spectator was too overt because the Spectator's there. Just uh, <laughs> really I, I, no, no, it was, it was called Encounter. It's a okay, great, right, it's a great right. literary magazine. Had a lot of interest. J. G. Ballard's uh, Trusty Exhibition was, uh, I think, that's about the first time that was uh, published. Uh, and uh, oh, it was Christopher Isherwood. Oh, oh Isherwood, yeah. Isherwood, Spender. Yeah, 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 wow, yeah, yeah. that old little gang. Um, <laughs> 
but it's an interesting and, and now because i think when i come to australia i'm interested in some of the conspiracy uh theory it doesn't matter uh it's great because we've got obviously got the you know the the, the, the guy who understands how sound works outside hasn't ever done uh one of the book shambles before and keeps looking with this kind of face going i can't imagine it's meant to sound like this <laughs> not realizing the level of amateurism we've been bringing now for to hear what this 18 months <laughs> they kicked a microphone i can hear people glugging drinks this is not how we do it in australia well we've brought shabby english rage with us and we're not going back to england because of fucking brexit so um, i've been saying that on stage last night i kept saying that i'm here and i'm a guest in your country and depending on how things go in the next couple of weeks i may well be staying here for as long as i possibly can there's gonna be so many opportunities opened up between australia and the uk now we're gonna be the best of friends Oi. Oi. but there is this no the thing i was gonna say but in terms of money that i am presuming that conspiracy theory magazines are funded by Russia. <laughs> because when I was last here in, what was it, August, uh, and I went, I couldn't find Cosmos, the science magazine. So I thought, well, what's the opposite? All of these <laughs> new age magazines with pictures of Donald Trump on the front. For yeah. balance. Yeah, right. and you read them and you go, wow, this is so overt, this strange use of a mixture of kind of hippie fascism right. and, you know, crystal genocide that goes on. And I just find it really... I can't cope with the modern world like the new um like the hippie <laughs> yeah but like hippie fascism I it's I can't cope with how quickly the signs and signifiers are getting blurred so I I always used to think boys who like computer games they're on the team they're nerds <laughs> and now I'm like oh then they're emphatically not on the team no. and like it, I just it would really upset me I feel like the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to be you know shy teenage girls who make fanzines <laughs> Those guys are pro eugenics, yeah. and I'm like, no. <laughs> Every fanzine with Pepe the Frog on the oh, no! Yeah, no. I just line up my fanzine collection on the floor, and it spells out <laughs> Pepe the Frog, and I'm like, oh. back. that's one of the things that when you talk about the refugee, uh, uh, I found the first time I came over here 13 years ago, mm. uh, I was I was down at St Kilda and uh, having drinks with people and it was that first shock of finding out that everyone who appeared to be these kind of nice liberal people they kept going I've heard about your country or oh, the refugee problem you're overrun aren't you mm. and it seems that UK there's this kind of mythic version mm. that may well unfortunately become no it won't become true uh, that's not the way around I was looking at it but it, it's this myth that's created in people's minds like you see it in America all the time oh and a lot of your uh, cities are now uh, no, controlled God, by Muslims <laughs> yes. and you go no I mean we have got a Muslim mayor but he's very much for you the threat of a good example <laughs> and it's kind of did you see that was that, a thing and uh, over here I kept having oh you're overrun I was thinking well we're, we're not overrun no it's uh, certainly we found the same groups of people to blame mm. for why people may not have what they and it's a and it reminded me as well of going around some of the areas that I've been into, seeing the churches and sometimes in in the world of of, of you know atheism mm. there is all church and all religion is evil yes. and uh, and you just walk past these churches with these great big banners saying refugees welcome refugees and welcome. you or go we with... need to find common ground in liberalism and not to go merely because you may well have a deity in yes. your ideology doesn't therefore mean that uh your cakes and welcoming gestures should also be rejected well also like loads of you know loads of um religious organizations do practical activism you know they sponsor refugees they try to you know make sure that they can bring people over and support them they run food banks they demonstrate regularly what activism can mm. be and like you can't really 
A few years ago, there was this uh, Let Them Stay campaign. 300 people were brought from these offshore camps that we run to Australia for medical attention, and then the government was going to try and send them back. And these are women who had been raped on Nauru, for example, being sent back to the place where they'd been raped. 37 babies the government wanted to send back to these kind of Pacific Island camps. Big Let Them Stay campaign, and all these churches came out and said, we will offer sanctuary, like actual, you know, old school, like hunchback of Notre Dame, (laughs) actual sanctuary. And uh, said we will absolutely do that. And you know the idea of the immigration department busting in the, the doors of a church, I think, was just was just too toxic for even our immigration department to stomach. So it didn't happen. Um, yeah, I love that stuff. And and also I think you know there's this weird, you know, when people like co-opt. Uh, gay rights or women rights to fuel their Islamophobia. Oh, like, yeah. 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 Well, for one day a year, they're like, actually, I really, really care about women. <laughs> I really care about that. So it's like, oh, these Muslims are coming over. They, they hate you, Tom. You're gay. I was like, no, I've met refugees who from Iran who would have been extremely homophobic when they arrived in the country, but having years and years of dedicated advocacy and and help from a range of people in Australia, many of them queer, um, they've completely realized that that's ridiculous their position and that gay people are people and love them uh, and welcome them into this country you know so the idea that you just that people do not change at all and that part of welcoming people into your society doesn't involve some kind of sharing of common values and an and an education in that way i think is just um it's very silly it's ridiculous ridiculous yeah, let's, I said it. <laughs> you were talking about uh, your your move to vegetarianism. So let's have let's your have your, your uh... right. I still haven't read that, but I am. Um, do you know what is t- what has turned me vegetarian is going on a reality television show where we <laughs> killed a. I didn't. Where a crocodile was. Ki- it was not a crocodile. A, a caiman was killed, mm. and it was the whole thing was so traumatic. Yeah, and I really felt like. That whole thing is you're supposed to be able to be like, well, if you can kill it and eat it yourself, mm. then it means that you can come to terms with eating meat. And I was like, well, I can't bear this. This is unbearable. <laughs> so then I had to chill it right out on the mm. meat front. Have you read this? Is Jonathan Stephen Fowler is, you know, everything is illuminated mm. and um, incredibly loud and extremely close. Mm. And this book is just... Um, you know, the idea is that he's having a son and so he wants to find out what he would feed his son. And so he writes, uh, he wrote to a few um, local abattoirs or meat production companies just about the process and they just would not get back to, to them at all, to him at all. And so his naturally curious mind makes him go further and find out more. And uh, that ended up just turning around his entire attitude to the whole situation. And he's, he's quite a um, perhaps centrist or a kind of, you know, pretty reasonable a uh, sensible person who's not, you know, dreadlocked and <laughs> and going to music festivals. He's just like, this is unconscionable and we cannot continue to do this. He's quite a mainstream guy. Yeah, and he's, he's like, well... You know, in the few, I don't imagine that all that you know half of Americans will be vegetarian by say 2020. But it is reasonable to think that maybe half of the meals eaten uh, by 2020 were vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So if there was just a reduction in the amount of meat that people consumed broadly. Then that would be that would be beneficial. And there's little facts at the bottom of every page, and one of them is that the meat industry and agriculture contributes more to climate change every single year than all of transport combined, which is mind blowing. And I remember my boyfriend at the time. I read that fact to him, and he's like, "That's just that's not true. That's just what? not true. It's just not true. That's just it's not true." And I said, "Well, 
I'm going to take his word over it because he's like, you know. <laughs> he's done some research. <laughs> that is great news, though, because that means now, because I always feel, obviously, the, uh, the the guilt of travelling. We've come all the way to Australia. Mm. But now I go, I've offset the 10,000-mile <laughs> journey by having the vegetarian option. You've uh, been vegetarian for a long time, Yeah, though. so I've offset that. No, do you know what, though? Uh-oh. I started eating fish again, and I shouldn't. I, the, mm. but the, well, it's tricky. But I think... <laughs> Do you I mean, know I what? don't like, like fish that much, but then I go to an aquarium and I think I like those ones, but they're not the ones I eat. <laughs> I, 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 I don't eat any that are non-dowdy. If non, <laughs> non-dowdy fish, the flamboyant fish, I'll go, you're fine. Yeah. You stay swimming. The the dull fish that yeah. often have Brown like a small scales. fungus growing on them. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> better, kind of, better, better off there on a plate. Any Dory Nemo situation, yeah. I'm not eating that. Yeah. But it's such a, like, like the fact that what I'm doing now is... Uh, only eating meat in the weekends, which already I know it's not that much, right? I know it's not that big a change. I know it's a bit pathetic, sure. but like for having done it my whole life and it being like so intrinsic to like nearly every meal, mm. to do that it's been a relatively easy change. Yes. And knowing that, like, what that means is five days out of seven, I'm not contributing to that. Oh my god, it's such but a great feeling, guys. I don't think I think this is you know the thing you have to avoid is I mean most of the vegans I know are nothing like the version of vegans. Oh, what is it about vegans? Always saying, oh, no, thank you. I don't eat that. You go, but that's not banging on about it. That's just rejecting your ham. And that's an acceptable thing to do. And most of them have never... um, Most vegans I know just go, oh, you know, when you try and do veganuary or something like that. Yeah. Didn't matter if you then go. Oh, I did eat some Oreos, which are made near some milk powder, uh, or even I. I didn't that yesterday. I wasn't a vegan. They go. It's the start of something. There's a, he talks about a food critic in the in New York who is vegan until five p.m. every day, and then afterwards eats whatever he wants. So I mean, the response would be like, "Aha! See, you're not a hundred percent consistent and perfect in every single way. I've got you. You should be shit like me." Well, no, that's not how human beings work. We all draw our lines, and I think. You know, being a vegetarian, you kind of admit your limitations. I say, look, I just, I just I, no, I do not have the the energy or time or discipline to dedicate to being a vegan. I just, I honestly cannot do that. I'm not going to pretend that I do. If I tried to be vegan, I would, I would screw it up really quickly and would feel shit about myself. So, vegetarianism is this kind of, you know, not perfect but slightly better middle ground, and that's maybe all anyone could hope for for anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's Aristotle, the- isn't it? <laughs> It'll I do. think that is the that problem. That was Aristotle, wasn't it? That'll do. <laughs> That'll do, mate. <laughs> Sorry, Robin. No, no, it's fine. I was gonna. I was just gonna say that as everyone in this room is a member of the the liberal media elite, <laughs> and uh, that one of the biggest battles, and I think we talked about this before, is everyone is a hypocrite now. Mm. That's just the way it is. And you yeah. just have to kind of accept that there are, the thing is to try and get a low level of hypocrisy. Also, yeah. the slogan and that I, I've been trying to push, hypocrites can be helpful. <laughs> that you is a lovely be, badge. Thank yeah, Thank you. But you can still be useful even if what you're you know, even if you have loads of problems with you, like the 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 thing about being on the lift is that quite often it's like, no, nope, they've messed up, write them off, put them in the bin. And that isn't as helpful as going okay, let's try and see how we can have a dialogue about these ways this person has messed up. But at the same time, they do have a point about X, Y, and Z, and they have done this, that, the other. Mm. You know? But that seems to, that a lot of that stems from social media as well, which is to be utterly forthright and to be dogmatic. And therefore, if you in any way are penned into a certain group or believed to be in a certain group, mm. if you don't follow every single one, I mean, that's why it's easier to be on the right, mm. as far as I can see, is you, you're allowed to do anything you want. Yep. You can bludgeon anything. <laughs> 
and uh, and it's all fine. That's just part of your right wing libertarian views. Yes, is to destroy and burn down, and then on the left or on liberalism. Uh, you may well buy the wrong shoe, a shoe yes. that you hadn't realised the information behind that shoe, that along the way, one of the people who made it, there was a child who peels the soles on and puts them back on, all that stuff, and therefore everything you believe is null and void. Mm. The, the book's great too because it talks about the influence that the agricultural lobby has on, on politics and like just the stranglehold that it has and the way that big money influences all sorts of things. And of course, you know, people in the National Party in this country from agricultural areas, you know, the, the meat... I mean, the livestock issue in Australia was, was huge. So this was us, you know, putting live animals on giant barges and sending them to Indonesia and, and Middle Eastern countries so they can be slaughtered according to religious practices. But they're alive on the... They have to be kept alive on the barge. So it's just, you know, I think weeks, you know, at sea in burning hot conditions, cramped onto a giant fucking ship and Four Corners, an investigative program, filmed it and released it and... And then, you know, just the argument is, well, this is a huge industry for us. So, you know, money is more important than this, the welfare of these animals. And it's, and it's that blatant. People can be that blatantly faced about it. Or the racing industry brings in so much money um, to the economy. Ipso facto, we need to keep it going, regardless of the, whether, in fact, we shoot a horse in the face when it breaks a leg. Also, that's suppressing the robot horse industry, which... The robot horse industry, Which, to right. my mind, is going to be a big... Automation. Big thing. Robot, yeah. <laughs> These are things that I wouldn't mind. A robot horse, because yes. you could put one in every 50 robot horses, you could put a rogue chip. <laughs> so do something crazy. Do something absolutely unexpected. Yeah, mental. You yeah. know, there are ways to um, make all of this. I yeah. don't know where I'm or going. Or just don't race horses as another yeah, option. Yeah, but racing a robot horse until they develop feelings well, they and go, then there's going to be yeah, problems read that because yeah. you'll look into the robot horse's eye and you'll see that it gets it yeah. Yeah. and that's when it'll become complicated and the robot horses will rise <laughs> up on two legs and then there'll be the, the wars but until then yes yeah it's like greyhound so, racing <laughs> i'm just seeing your remake of far lap but with philip k dick's input from some kind of it's, it's uh far lap robot far lap has become sentient um come on tell me you wouldn't watch that film yeah robot far lap not only would i watch it but why I'm they'd all be programmed it. to races immediately as i guess it'd be like robot wars as well wouldn't it'd it? be like yeah. robot wars yeah. because after the race the horses have to fight each other. <laughs> Just a buzzsaw comes out of the roof and shit. Well, the greyhound racing is amazing. I don't know if you heard anything about this, but in New South Wales, again, investigative report, Animals Australia, a fantastic organisation, exposed live baiting. So that's, you know, putting a real live rabbit on a little track and sending it along to make the greyhound race after it. Just real fucking animals. Uh, that's putting a little bit of drugs in the old uh, the old greyhound's mouth to get them really buzzed up and ready to go. Ice, I think, on the on the mouths of greyhounds. All this is exposed in New South Wales. The Premier of the state says, this report is ridiculous, we're shutting down the industry. Then, you know, the old money comes into it, lobbying, uh, money exchanged hands, uh, and there's, you know, this, this, oh my God, but think of all the people uh, that are employed by this industry, and this is a war on working class people, because this is, this is a working class sport. And then the Premier just backflips and says, yep, yeah, no, you're right, we, we, we got it wrong. Um, this is going to be maintained alive with, with more intense um, uh, conditions imposed on people, on races and stuff. And you kind of go, no, intrinsic to the sport is the uh, 
placing of greater importance on money and profit over the welfare of these animals. It is fundamentally cruel in whatever way you set it up, making animals run for entertainment. Um, have some goddamn backbone and stick by your decision because you made the right call. And how do you sleep at night? <laughs> have you read? I know right, you let's go through no, the no. books. Yeah, because you brought them in. We had Owen Jones on the show, but have you, have you read The Establishment? I have read yeah, I read the first I one and I haven't read that one. Oh but he's God. my friend, so I feel like I don't need to read it. <laughs> I get it. I don't need to be supportive <laughs> to my friends. I mean, I just, I haven't read um, Chav. But um, I just think that this this blew my mind. I bought it in London, and I think I read it, uh, started reading it there, and then on the plane back to Australia. And it's extraordinary because the you know it is extremely um, British and focused on UK at a certain time. Although you know the ruling elites are sort of a time of memorial. But there's so much crossover. Yeah, you know, the similarities between Australian society and the UK in this respect. The collusion between the media, um, the government, the police force, business, the finance sector, the city uh, in London, and how it all colludes to fuck over the little guy it was just just extraordinary it's one of those great books that just make you furious and make you look at everything in a very different way including even the bbc i've highlighted a little section sorry i just thought I'd, oh there you go uh about how you know there are all these accusations of the bbc being you know left-wing bias but of course that may not actually be true oh it's four times more biased towards the conservative they did a study of it yes it yeah was, right yeah. this this cardiff uh business representatives appeared on the bbc significantly more than they did on commercial itv news in 2012 business representatives outnumbered trade union representatives on the bbc's news at six by more than 19 to one a dramatic increase from five to one in 2007 voices from the Cities such as stockbrokers and hedge fund managers dominated coverage of the 2008 financial crisis mm. and subsequent bailout of the banks. The BBC is the perfect vehicle for the establishment. It allows the free market status quo to be portrayed as a neutral, apolitical stance. Only those who deviate it from it are seen as biased and needing to be countered to preserve objectivity. 99% of business coverage on the BBC has the subtext that business is good, capitalism is good, capitalism is dynamic, the free market is delivering, it is making better lives for the people of the global south. And if you say capitalism might not be really great, then you're kind of the wacky weirdo who then mm. needs to be balanced by someone who's presumably dressed in gold. Uh, oh, Simon now, Rich. Of, uh, Terry, uh, Simon, yes. Love Simon Rich. Big fan of Simon Rich. Absolutely yes. love no, him. No, nothing of Simon Rich. Oh. oh! Show me Simon Rich. Okay. Well do. So, now, is this the one that's got the amazing article about the pickle? Yes, yes. sellout. Yes. Um, so, I first encountered Simon Rich, and actually, I'm not trying to boast, but I met him once. Oh, he wasn't, get it. Yeah, he wasn't very impressed by me. Oh. <laughs> and No, I, <laughs> I, I loved him so much, I was, I was sort of overexcited to meet him. He's, he's a... I, I see him as like this incredible stellar talent like he's so young and the amount of things that he's written that have just been so funny and so on the nose and this particular story called sellout um was published in the new york times i want to say and it is it's like a big satire about what it gentrification and hipsterdom and what that means and it's about a man who falls in a pickling jar in the start of the 20th century and then is revived at the end of it and kind of his fortunes afterwards. He it's it's he works in a pickle factory. He's like a Jewish immigrant, and so it's written in his voice. Like I come to city, I work hard to make a uh, good pickle, and then he falls into the uh, brine in the pickling factory. He's preserved there for a hundred years. He then wakes up, and he's heartbroken. And his city, Brooklyn, has changed irrevocably. And he says, "Well, my wife was pregnant when I fell into the thing, though. So maybe I have grandkids." He goes to meet his his great great grandson, who is Simon Rich. And so through his eyes, he is then hanging out with Simon Rich and seeing Simon's privileged, hipster, 
self-obsessed, lazy. lazy life. So it is this brutal evisceration of himself, this like mm. this entire, you know, pages and pages of self-deprecation about, you know, how he... He thinks he has principles as a writer, but will sell out and happily work on any project for the right money. His inability to commit to anything, his huge ideas for himself. It's, you know, kind of girls, Lena Dunham kind of vibe. And it is just so funny to see, yeah, through his eyes, like how much food Simon Rich eats and how from the grandpa's perspective, he would like, you know, put that food away and keep it for forever. It's just brilliantly done and very funny. And so, um, so very now that I just yeah made me laugh a lot that book it's great yeah. and, he's and written, Ian McMillan likes it and he's a good poet and I like him he's a go. good poet and really? also he's, he's written yeah he's written a few collections of short stories and they're full of jokes they're really, really funny. funny I like as funny as David Sedaris for me I yes think. yeah really good now, I love David Sedaris going around picking up litter I didn't know anything about this until <laughs> last year it's one of the loveliest things to yeah. find out isn't it you go what does David Sedaris do in his uh, um, time off he just Tidies, it's streets and stuff. So. And... It's the opposite of finding out that an artist you like the work of is a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he's the anti Bill Cosby. Yeah, is it, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> what he's doing on his day to day is delightful and representative. <laughs> um, I hear that every now and again you have someone talk about Terry Pratchett. Terry mm-hmm. Pratchett is huge for me, and this copy of The Light, fantastic. I love because the cover has completely come off the actual books. But I remember reading perfect that. binding. <laughs> You know that, don't you? No. Ah, oh, fucking hell. It's one of my bet. Well, remember my total yeah. art book that I bought yep. the other day by Adrian Henry. That started to loosen. Perfect Binding was this system, which was, it's the best way of making books. It's brilliant. It's not, though. It's not because once they get to that age, you're sitting in the bath and you accidentally create papier-mâché and you never know what happens in the end because oh. all the pages just drop. It's like the Trump healthcare thing. If you call it perfect, people will be like, well, that must be a good system. Big, so, beautiful system. how old were you when you started reading uh, Terry Pratchett? I think I read this first too, which is the sequel. Light Fantastic is the sequel to Color of Magic, which is so I just came in having no idea what was going on really. But I would have been, I reckon, yeah, twelve or thirteen, something like that, and just having my mind regularly blown by how dark and funny and how it took all of the fantasy tropes and just fuck with it and had such an incredible joy. And I remember seeing some of the TV show, the, the cartoon was on Australian TV, and has that opening sequence of the, the actual Discworld on the back of the turtle, and you're like, what? What is this? What is this? Because in Australia, I don't think Terry Pratchett was sort of as known as wildly or hailed as it was in the UK. So that TV show just made no sense to anyone ever. And also, I think it's probably not got the same kind of uh, low-key links to kind of folkloric and like natural stuff, you know? So it's even more an alien world because all the Englishness isn't quite there when you guys approach it. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, yes, it's so English, all the characters. (laughs) So Rincewind is just this amazing kind of, yeah, uh, very English wizard, I thought, who just seems defeated by life and everything. And I just love it, yeah. Just the the, the incredible amount of imagination and, uh, yeah, the... Rejection of all rules, really. Uh, I love, that's what I love about it. And was that your first kind of author that you fell in love with and that you read a lot of? I think so. I guess I must have been reading Harry Potter simultaneously, which I, you know, unapologetically See, love and so adore. See, that's so frightening to me, is that you people are so young that whereas I was already an old man when Harry <laughs> Potter came out and you grew up with... It's like seeing no, my I son who... I find it so exciting that... Because you're probably the generation that actually did grow up with the books, didn't you? Yeah, I was pretty much the same age as Harry. Perfect so, yeah, Each year he came out. Oh, yeah, the sweet was, spot. Yeah, real good. But watching a group of eight and nine-year-olds now reading these huge books... Yes. 
is brilliant. Yeah. And they are so engrossed in them. You know, he's he's onto the final book now. Right. Yeah, nine years old, whereas you would have probably been what fourteen or something like that. So, yeah, I must have. Yeah, sort of started around yeah nine nine two thousand. So yeah, would have been ten or eleven, sort of starting that. And I think I started. I read the philosopher's started to read the philosopher's stone. It's like, no, nah, this is nonsense. I don't get this at all. And then for some reason had another crack and was like, this is the greatest thing of all time. I saw the play last year when I was in in London and it it just oh. filled me with absolute joy and wonder, both theatrically How did you and as a ticket. I paid an exorbitant amount of money. <laughs> Worth it. Sitting next to a tiny girl too, who was like dressed up and everything. That was like incredible oh, too. Like that's just the to beautiful thing that. about it is yeah. that you're, as we're finding out with someone like J.K. Rowling, is well, there's a lot of values that she holds and that she's prepared to talk about. Yeah. And so that these people who was as children or the children now, when I went around Harry Potter World, the, mm. have you been there yet? I haven't. No. Uh, it's it's great. It's where they made the movies yes. and the, the fantastic sets. And it's not like loads of rides. It's just his stuff. Yeah. And seeing the different people dressed up as as a Hermione as well, where you go, brilliant, because Emily Watson, because she represents yeah. a series of values now to a lot of people. Right. So they started off with her being, oh, she's this character, and now they see her doing speeches about feminism and all of these things. Yeah. Did you see Lolly Adafope's show last year? Yeah, it's so funny. She had a sequence where she talked about auditioning for Black Hermione, the role. <laughs> She's like, I think she just call her Hermione, not Black Hermione. <laughs> like, okay, right, I'll just read the script. Um, yeah, no, that play was extraordinary. I, I loved it. And uh, yeah, all that kind of fantasy stuff. I, I, I don't quite go in the deep game. I'd never read the Game of Thrones books, I think. Happily watched the show, but I can never quite go on that deep because uh, there's always a journey and a sword, and I just think you need something different and funny like Terry Pratchett does. Yeah, yeah. And so the final. And this book. last one, I just think everyone should read. This is called "Play Little Victims" by Kenneth Cook, who was an Australian author. It's out of print now, as far as I can tell. And my parents had that book, and I just picked it up one day. And it is a animal farm esque um, analogy, um, a kind of Aesop fable vibe where. God looks at the state of the world, thinks it's awful, ends all life, Ice Age comes down, and then a couple of hundred years later, um, some mice who have been disturbed by God fiddling about to the point where they've all the rules of evolution have changed and they're basically sentient beings. They then start to repopulate the earth. They find books and try and emulate man. And, of course, they run into all the problems that man ever has. And with the growing population, they try to think up some more ways to reduce that population and eventually... Um, Oh, don't read the end. There's a twist. <laughs> and uh, yeah, look. Stop it, Josie. <laughs> it's a short book, but it's it's. There's nothing I love more than a brilliant idea executed in a simple way, and mm. no word is there that doesn't need to be. And it is chilling and darkly funny, and about you know how probably our species is going to wipe itself off the face of the planet. Good stuff. <laughs> but you don't feel that pessimistic. I don't feel that pessimistic, no. But it is um, nice to be reminded how foolish we could be. I think that's a good thing that art can do. And, um, and yes, the idea that the delusions that we keep telling ourselves and the solutions that we keep coming up with all the time. Great link. What? what? First podcast we did in Australia, we talked about Waking Fright, mm. which is by Kenneth Cook. 
That's right, and which was, was made into a film, which I have not seen, which I hear was. Very, it's very a good. really. I was chatting with a, a friend of mine who's a, a, a director, uh, Darren, who made uh, Razzle Dazzle, the, uh, the movie I did out uh, here years ago, and uh, he was talking about that change, interesting change in Australian movies, where Wake and Fright, which is a really terrifying, because yeah. it's just you turn up in this outback town and this teacher just everything kind of starts to fall apart, and it is another world. Right. My mate was saying that still happens. That is still there are towns where basically all the people. Who are on the run live. Yes. And if you do end up there, Darwin. You know, shout out you know, to Darwin. It's really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that was a time when it was still American directors, Ted Kotcheff, it's yeah. British actors, Donald Pleasance. Right. And then just around that time is the point of Australian film industry going, now. We'd like let's to make it. Make let's, let's, we'll do it ourselves. But it's, yeah. a, it's a brilliant, terrifying film. Yeah. You should watch it, Josie. Yeah, I've written it down. I love that sort of thing. I um, So there really are places in Australia where that have that kind of frontier yeah quality still yeah there is yeah there is certainly Dar- you know darwin or around yeah nor- northern western australia the northern territory in my limited experience there are some places there where people have gone to begin again and i've heard in darwin you don't ask people where they came from really you just it's quite rude <laughs> see because all i know well i suppose T- tim winton's dirt music has some elements of, right. of uh have you re- ever read that i haven't no oh it's great yep that's probably my my favorite uh yeah we um, talked about it yeah yeah so yep. really but that that one's oh yeah that was with kate yep. wasn't it yeah yeah but it's um yeah and i i'd love to go to darwin in one way but then everyone says it costs as much as flying back to london <laughs> so you can't it can be pricey, yeah. I mean, the Kimberley in, in northern Western Australia is, is extraordinary. And Arnhem Land, which is right at the tip of the country, where I went last year, I did this TV show, um, First Contact, which was going to remote Aboriginal communities to, to, to sort of explore racism. And, uh, you know, this this uh, Arnhem Land, that's um, Yonu country, that's where Yotha Yindi is from, and, like, the Bangara Dance Company, the director, come from there, and just an incredible, mind-blowing um, culture that are living in many ways continuously, as their ancestors have for thousands of years. Sleeping on the beach, there's a crocodile in the water called Nike, named after by Kathy Freeman, <laughs> the writer who was there. You know, like, just mind-blowingly, um, uh, you, you get some inkling of trying to get it, trying to understand what, what it actually means to be in a culture that's survived for thousands and thousands and thousands of years there. And just a really beautiful but very remote part of the country, yeah. Now, this is very interesting. I wanted to say there's a bit in Hope in the Dark, which is Rebecca Solnit's book that I'm currently still obsessed by. You told me, which I bought, and I have not read yet. Oh, oh my God, Joseph Cerrone on chapter two. <laughs> the, 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 oh, no, she bought the true. book on the first episode of this that we did, <laughs> and she reads a sentence and goes, such a dreamy sentence. <laughs> uh, and then, then a month later, sentence two time. <laughs> on a point of order... I am deliberately. The floor recognises Miss Long. <laughs> Hold, Mister Ince. Yes. I am deliberately not finishing it because I have a joke in my show about how I haven't finished yes. it and I want it to be real Never and authentic. Never but lie to also, people. there's a bit in Rebecca Solnit's where she says, uh, constantly, group human nature comes out in the best possible ways, and I am always wary of ever making any sort of a, assumptions about human nature in the group form that are too negative because she talks about the way that whenever there are big tragedies the first thing to do is this kind of herd mentality to help 
It is. It's people going, right, uh, they don't, you know, you don't think lots about it. People just get in their car, they drive down, they say, how can I help? And they band together and they do things. And it's astonishing. And it is, you know, that is an instinct. It's like protect the ant colony. You know, all of us are like, right, what can we do together to help? You know, I mean, the, and, and there was a cyclone in northern northern Australia right now. And there was just, I just heard on the radio the other day, it's just people like want to help. Where do we send our money? And it's incredible, incredible. But then the, the border of moral concern literally ends at the borders of our country. And so any anyone from outside of that, not my problem. What about our own backyard? What about our own he- homeless living on the street? It's amazing to me. And, and I keep coming back to this. It's sort of in the Peter Singer vibe as well, too. Like, where does, the, where does your circle of moral concern end? Does it extend all the way to chickens or geese that you shouldn't you know, make foie gras out of or is it literally your family and friends in your immediate um your immediate sphere of influence yeah. and if i think it is the compulsion of everyone to try and push the borders of that moral concern out further and further and further ideally right well we've run out of time no i'm glad you ended on peter singer now there's a man who's been perpetually misunderstood yes. over decades yes uh very interesting human being how um, can i don't know any peter singer what's he uh doing? he well i suppose he wants to kill the disabled one. yeah Ooh. The, i actually uh, don't so like we're just gonna keep that in and me talking about kissing hitler <laughs> and uh i think this could become uh one nation's favorite but, podcast. But this reminds me of the other day when we were talking to dr carl and he said about how evolutionarily it's about what's urgent so of course we respond to a natural disaster with right. kindness because it's urgent. Yes. Of course, people respond, you know, almost within their own borders because it's urgent. Yes. But of course, they don't deal with long-term homelessness problems because that's kind of nagging away yeah, and it's not an there. urgency. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry. I just realised we never mentioned when you were talking before about political correctness and what your oh. show's about. We never mentioned Barry Crimmins, who is. Do you know Barry Crimmins? Yes, I do. Know yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. He's. He's. Uh, uh, I was uh, chatting to him the other day, and uh, for UK listeners, I am very pleased to say he's going to be on the comedy lineup of Latchi festival oh, as well amazing. and i hope i'll be doing something uh, with him as well um but he you know his his definitions of you know why it's just nonsense this all these guys who are predominantly guys mm. who are just punching down the whole time oh. and thinking that is some grand gesture of of being one of the great you know lone knights mm. traveling the land and that's Tom's show. To, well, so. I mean, <laughs> no, no. again, yeah, and I tried to do a show about it, but I none of it lives up to the Stuart Lee routine defending political correctness. He sort of did it before. Yeah, but that wasn't Stuart Lee. That was the character Stuart Lee. Did ah, I see. It's the real Tom Ballard doing this. That means so much more. <laughs> I'm uh, not a cowardly. I don't hide behind. No, okay, I love you. Tom is, uh, <laughs> Tom is at the Edinburgh Festival, and uh, you were playing the, the Pleasants. You're not doing it this year, are you? I am going to come up for five days and watch everyone's shows. Oh, come up in the first No, last five days. I'm not doing it this year. But it's mainly because (laughs) I've been doing it so long and I don't have anything special to say and I want to wait until I really, really (gasps) have something good. No, come come in the last five days. I know why you come in the last five days because everyone's exhausted and broken. You'll just be there going, la, 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 (laughs) la, How arrogant. I can jump on all the buzz. I don't need to make my own decisions. I'll say, who's been nomad? I'll be going to see the nomad shows. Right, what's up? I'm busy, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. the TV thing. (laughs) (laughs) If I only had a television thing, please employ me. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters and this week a special thanks to Caleb Melchior, Pete Knowles, Neil Boland, Georgia Brown, Colin Murter, Heather Swan, Dr Nick Meckerell, Annalise Liu and Alan Trotter. And this week's box of books winner is Seth 
Bennett. Congratulations, Seth. To claim your prize, drop us an email to contact at cosmicshambles.com and we will get your box of books out to you when we get back from the Edinburgh Fringe. And if you would like to be in the running to win a box of books as well as just help keep book shambles being a thing, you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become a patron of the show for as little as $1 an episode. And by doing that, you'll not only have our eternal gratitude, but you'll get lots of other bonus goodies as well. Extended episodes of each week, plus lots of bonus episodes as well. Recently, we've just put up a interview Robin did with the legendary comedian Barry Crimmins at the Latitude Festival. That is exclusive for patrons. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles to become a patron and that's where you'll also find all the past episodes and reading lists and everything else. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Music